Okay, so we'll continue with our Revelation study. Today we'll be in chapters 10 and 11. It's a little bit difficult to keep track of where we are, so I want to just go back and review real quickly, put us in the context of Revelation. The book is organized in the categories of what was, what is, and what is to come. And we saw what was and what is in chapters 1 through 3 with the letters to the churches. And it was appropriate that the letters be written to the churches because Revelation opens with a statement, an assertion that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ given to His servants. To His servants. So this is a book written to believers. It's written to people who are servants of Jesus. So what was and what is was was given to the churches, believers in Christ. And the message was very clear because Revelation is a very simple book. It talks about very complex events, but it's a very simple book with a simple message. And the message is be an overcomer, be a victor, be a conqueror, be someone who prevails, which is this word nikeo, which comes from the Greek word Nike, the goddess of victory. Be an overcomer. And the way you do that, the way we do that, is by being a great martyreo, a great witness. And sometimes witnesses are asked to give their life, but always they're asked to not fear death. There's many kinds of death. There's physical death. There's rejection, rejection of the world, rejection of people, and other kinds of death. No matter what the cost that we're asked to bear for being a great witness, we're asked to bear that. And in doing so, we become a conqueror, a victor, one who prevails, an overcomer. And the key message of a way to do that is do not fear death, any kind of death. So then we started in chapter 4 and we went on what is to come. And what we've seen in what is to come is the key position that John is in as he begins to get this message is in the throne room. He's transported to the throne room. The word throne shows up 41 times in Revelation because there's this overwhelming emphasis that God is in control. And that's an important message because we're seeing events spin out of control as we go through Revelation. God is in control. And we saw that these horses went out and these plagues went out. And each time they're authorized. It was given to him to conquer. It was given to them to bring the plague on the earth. All these things are prescribed from the throne room. And all these things are what is to come. And in each case, we are still encouraged to not fear death, to continue to be an overcomer, to be a witness. We saw the first thing that happened was there was a scroll. And this scroll, we now know, as as we've gone through Revelation, uh, contained the culmination of history. This is everything coming to completion, coming to fruition. And nobody could open the scroll. History was not allowed to be culminated. And John cried. And then there was someone found worthy. And it was the Lamb who was slain. That's who was worthy to open the scrolls. So he began to break the seal and open the scroll. He begins to break the seal. Each time he breaks the seal, a drama comes to life. And we see something happen. And these judgments on the earth start to unfurl. So we saw the seven seals get open. And this book unrolled. Seven seals unfurled, and then we saw the seventh seal. We saw seven trumpets. We saw these six things happen, and these 
so far in these trumpets. We're still in the sixth trumpet when we go into chapter 10. And the first trumpet was opened, we saw a third of the vegetation on earth die. When the second trumpet was opened, we saw a third of the sea creatures die, and a third of the oceans turn to blood. When the third trumpet was opened, we saw a third of the springs become wormwood or bitter, and many died. It doesn't tell us how many, just many. In the fourth trumpet, we saw a third of the stars go dark. We'll see more about that next week. In the fifth trumpet, we saw five months of torment from demon scorpions out of the bottomless pit or the abyss, but only on those who had not been sealed by God. And then we saw the sixth trumpet, and a third of mankind was killed. And then let's look at 9.20, because it's kind of a run-up to chapter 10. So after all these seals, after all these plagues, which all were very reminiscent of the plagues on Egypt and the hardness of heart of Pharaoh, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. So unlike the Egyptians who saw the plagues and said, Hey, let us give you our gold and best wishes. Please be on your way. These guys say, even though these plagues are way worse, we're not bowing. Even though we know it's the Lamb and His wrath, we're not bowing the knee. Pretty hard hearts. We saw the seals unfurl, and the seventh seal was the seven trumpet judgments. And those things I just went through, the vegetation dying and so forth, those were the six trumpets that we saw. And what's going to happen is, in the seventh trumpet, there's going to be seven bowl judgments. But in between the seventh trumpet and the seven bowls, we're going to get an overview of human history, which is going to be real interesting. That'll be next time. An overview of human history and an explanation of how all this is coming together and where we fit in. It's pretty amazing. Okay, So seven seals, seven trumpets. We're in the sixth trumpet. We're still in the sixth trumpet here in chapter 10. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he sat his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and cried with a loud voice as a lion when it roars. Okay, so here's an angel. Looks like a pretty awesome angel. I wonder if this is the same angel that led Israel out of Egypt. You notice he's got a cloud on his head and fire on his feet. I wonder if you looked at that from the human perspective on earth, if it would look like a pillar by night and a cloud by day. I don't know. But it, it, again, this imagery of the plagues on Egypt and the deliverance of Israel from Egypt is all through this book. And he has in his book a little biblia, a little scroll. And he cried out, and seven thunders uttered their voices. So now we got thunders that are talking, which we saw the altar talked, and we saw the creatures talk, and now the environment is talking. So maybe the trees will even talk. And I can't wait to see all that. That's going to be a cool place to be. Disney will come to life in uh, the new earth. So then they uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write... But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. Now there's a lot of speculation about what did the seven thunders say. And you know what? I'm really confident on this interpretation. We don't know <laughs> what they said. This is, uh, I'm not sure about a lot of this stuff. I'm sure about this. We don't know. 
And I think the point here is, there's a lot that God doesn't want us to know. He's telling us what He wants us to know, and the part He doesn't want us to know, He's not telling us. Now, if you knew the day you were going to die and how you were going to die, would that make your life better or worse? Different. It would be different, for sure. I'm glad I don't know. There's some things that we don't need to know. And so he's telling us here, there's some stuff that I don't want you to know. Seal that up. Don't write it down. John knew he wasn't allowed to tell us. Paul actually told us, I got to see things that were amazing and I was told I can't pass it along. So some things he could tell us, some things he couldn't. Verse 5, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God will be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets. Now, again, remember we're in the sixth trumpet. The seventh trumpet is about to sound. So the seventh angel is going to sound. And in the days of this seventh angel, everything's going to come to pass. And one of the key things that we're going to see when these bowls start getting poured out and as the seventh trumpet blows is this is it we're finally at the finish line finally everything's coming to culmination so we're right at the end of human history right here now we see an emphasis here on him who created all things that is again an emphasis on god is in control god is god so throne room we've seen 41 times we saw in revelation 4:11 that the reason why we should worship god is because he is the creator you are worthy o lord to receive honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed so again one of the main themes of revelation is god is god Just because all this stuff's falling apart doesn't mean God's not God. It means this is part of what was written in this scroll. These are the events that were were prescribed and they're now unfurling. Furthermore, he says, there shall be delay no longer. Now this is a really interesting statement because what does that mean? It means that God wants to bring all things to completion. God wants to fulfill all the promises. God wants to reconcile all things to himself, but he's delaying. Now, why is he delaying? Let's look at Romans 9.22. Romans 9.22. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. What if? What if he was just enduring these things because it would, in the end, be better for all things? Well, that, that's because that's what he is doing. Look at Genesis fifteen, sixteen, And let's start up in um, 14. This is God speaking to Abraham. And he says to Abraham, the nation whom they serve. He's talking about them going into Egypt. Uh, his his family is going to go to Egypt for 400 years. And he says, The nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your father in peace. You shall bury it at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Isn't that interesting? 
So Abraham is in the promised land. He says, you know, your people are going to go to Egypt, and then they're going to come back. But I'm waiting for this time period because the Amorites' iniquity is not yet fulfilled. There comes a time when judgment is ripe. When, when the ra- grapes are ready, we're going to see a little later that it's going to go in harvest grapes. And it's this picture that when they're ripe is when you pluck them. And he just says, we've been delaying because the iniquity is not complete. But the iniquity is going to be complete and then this judgment is going to come pouring out. So we're in a delay period right now, but that delay is not going to last forever. Delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, what's going to happen? The mystery of God will be finished. And what does he mean by this? What is the mystery of God? Well, let's take a look at several different aspects of the mystery of God. That about God which he is revealing to us in time. Look at Mark 4.11. Mark 4.11, And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive. So the mystery of the kingdom of God is part of what Jesus showed his followers. And again, that mystery was largely focused on the person of Jesus Christ and him as fulfillment of all the prophecies. Look at Romans 11.25. Romans 11.25. For I do not desire, brethren, you should be ignorant of this mystery lest you should be wise in your own opinion. What is the mystery? That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and so all Israel will be saved. So another kind of new thing that's taken place is God made these promises to Abraham, to David, that there would be a kingdom, the kingdom would would, uh, last forever. And now there's this crazy thing happening where all the Gentiles and all the nations are being grafted into this fantastic promise. And then it's going to be fulfilled. Incredible. Again, how did that happen? Through the agency of Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 15.51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So the idea of a rapture, of a resurrection, of us being transformed from a physical body that corrupts to a physical body that doesn't corrupt. 1 Corinthians calls it a spiritual body. It's an amazing mystery and something that has been revealed in time. Look at Ephesians 5.32. This is speaking of marriage. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, fear your husbands. This is a great mystery, this marriage thing. The two shall become one flesh. An amazing mystery. Why is it a mystery? People have been getting married for a long time. Because I speak concerning Christ and the church. There's a marriage coming. There's a marriage supper that's going to come. There's a wedding involved here. And Jesus is the groom and his people are the bride. And this is not actually a new metaphor because it's used in the Old Testament oftentimes, especially when Israel goes astray. I'm thinking of maybe Ezekiel 16. And he calls Israel a wife that has left and gone into adultery. But this idea that Jesus is actually going to be actually married to the entire church, all of his people, it's an amazing mystery. We don't actually know 
what that's going to be like. It's hard for us to imagine. All we can know is what marriage is like uh, but among ourselves. But that is a picture of what is to come. What all this rolls up into is the culmination of human history in the person of Jesus Christ. Look at Colossians 1.16. With all of this in mind with Revelation, this verse that's generally real familiar to us, it's like an Awana staple, really comes to life. Listen to Colossians 1.16. For by Him all things were created. You hear the echo of Revelation there, right? That are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. We saw the thrones of Satan. We've seen the throne of God. And Jesus is over all that. We're going to see pretty soon Satan and his angels kicked out of heaven and limited to roam on the earth. Angels, principalities, powers, they're all His, visible or invisible. Thrones or dominions, principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He's before all things, and in Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, this mysterious bride that's going to ultimately be His bride to have who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, this resurrection that we're going to experience, that in all things He may have preeminence. You see, these are all things coming to completion. This word finished is the root word teleo. And we've seen this word all through Scripture. In Hebrews 11, it talks about teleo as, uh, let me see, sorry, Hebrews 7.11, it talks about teleo, or that is a root word of Hebrews 7.11, and it says something like, if the law could have brought perfection, all the translations translate this word perfection, and it's the idea of completion. If the Levitical priesthood and the law, in Hebrews it says, could have brought completion, could have reconciled all things and brought all things to the place they were supposed to be, then we wouldn't have needed another priest, it says. But we did need another priest. And who is it? This person of Jesus Christ, the new Melchizedek. That's who we needed. Because He is the one that's going to bring all things to completion. And so now we're delaying no longer. In the days of the seventh angel blowing the seventh trumpet, everything's going to come to completion. As He declared to His servants, the prophets, so there's nothing new here. This is what... God has been talking about all along. And He reveals it in pieces, like, kind of like a layer cake or a scroll that you're unraveling, but it all fits together. It's all part of the same story. So, verse 8, Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and the earth. Remember this angel's got one foot on the land, one foot on the sea. I think this is a big angel. And take this book. And I went to the angel and said, give me that little book. I think that's pretty cool. John's like, hey, okay, I'm, I'm getting this now. If I'm told something, i got some authority now. I see authority. And he said to me here, take it and eat it. It'll make your stomach bitter, but it'll be sweet as honey in your mouth. So I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. Now, we've seen this happen once before. Ezekiel had this happen to him. He was given these scroll and he ate it and it was like honey. This is something new. It was like honey, but then it turns bitter. And it was sweet as bitter in my, honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Now, I thought about this quite a while. What's he trying to tell us here? And this is the best I can do. The Word of God is sweet. 
sweet like honey. We've, we're told that all through the Scripture, right? Truth is what brings sweetness. But in this case, part of the truth is the judgment of God. In order for all things to come to fulfillment, for the seventh trumpet to bring everything to finality and there's delay no longer, a lot of really nasty things have to happen. And so a lot of times truth, although it's wonderful, has really bitter consequences. And I think that's what he's telling him here. And although the prophets were given the mysteries of God, and now the mystery of God's coming to fruition, John is going to add some things. Because he's got some more prophecy to give. And the prophecy concerns what? Many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Because again, although this is the fulfillment of Israel, although this is a fulfillment of the church, It involves the whole world. We're talking about the whole world here, not just a local event. Many peoples, many kings, many nations. So chapter 11. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God. These guys have an interesting way of dialoguing with one another, don't you think? They just order each other to do things. Give me that book. Eat the book. Measure the temple. Okay, so rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Okay, so... He's told to give them this uh, measuring rod and measure the temple, but leave out the outer court of the Gentiles. And what I find particularly interesting is we're not told anything about what the measurements are. Now, Ezekiel was given a rod and told to measure the temple, and he goes through and measures it and gives us the measurements. And you can see the Ezekiel temple, and it's clearly not the same temple as has ever been before, uh, and really not this temple, because it's the temple in the... Millennial kingdom. And it's a, it's a whole different deal. But here, we're not given what the measurements are. So why would the angel, why would God want us to know that John had measured something and then not give us the measurements? Well, it seems like there's at least there are a few things we can know about this. So since we don't know the measurements, what can we know? Well, one thing that we can know is that there is a temple. There is a temple. Now, that's very significant. Is there a temple there today? There's not. Okay, so there is a temple. And so that means there's going to be a temple during this time. That is particularly significant because if we go back to the timing of all this, which is rooted in the book of Daniel, remember we had 70 weeks that were prescribed for the people of Israel. 70 weeks of years, 490 years. And 69 weeks of years started when there was a, a, an edict to rebuild the wall and ends when Messiah is cut off. And so this time period when the wall was ordered to be rebuilt until Jesus is cut off, that's the first 69 weeks. And now we're in a pause. that We're on, we're on pause waiting for the 70th week, week to start. And then Daniel goes on and said the 70th week begins when there's a covenant between Israel and the Antichrist. And then it says in the middle of that week... In the middle of that week, there's an abomination of desolations that takes place. Well, the middle of the week's three and a half years. Half of seven's three and a half. 
And we're going to see here three and a half, three and a half, three and a half, all through this thing. And so the abomination of desolations spoken of in Daniel, there was already an instance in the period of the Maccabees. The Greek rulers sacrificed a pig on the altar and had put a statue of Zeus in the temple. And so something like that is foreshadowed. So it makes sense that there would be a temple during this time so that the abomination of desolations could be made clear. That's an interpretation, but it seems to fit. So he wants us to understand there is a temple. And then another thing that we can know from this, even though we don't know the measurements, I would say that's the temple that the abomination of desolations take place in. Because the next thing we can know is that the Gentiles are trampling over the outer court. And that is what happened during Antiochus Epiphanes. That the Gentiles came in and basically just took the place over. Then the Maccabees revolted and got it back. That's basically what took place. So we've got the temple, the temple has been rebuilt, and then the Gentiles come in and overrun it. Okay, what else can we know? It is a real physical structure that can be measured. This is not a spiritual temple. So I think that's an important thing. Okay, so he's going to tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And he will give the power to his two witnesses to prophesy 1,260 days. Now, this is interesting. Why would he say 42 months and 1,260 days? Uh, 42 times 30 is 1,260. And the Jews used a lunar calendar, so it's just the 30 days. It seems like it's the same time period, but he says it two different ways. Why would he do that? Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure why that is. Perhaps... He wants to emphasize that these witnesses are witnessing every day. Because that's how our witness happens. You know, the overarching message of Revelation is be a great witness, don't feel fear of death. When does our witness happen? Does it happen someday when something big happens to us? That, that's a lie that we're told. Uh, you know, someday I'll go do something significant. I'll go on a mission trip. Or I'll be on TV and say, uh, thank you Jesus for winning the Super Bowl or something like that. No. That's not it. It's every single day being faithful in the little things all day long. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe he wants us to know that the 70 weeks of Daniel are actually uh, weeks of years because we know we're, uh, we're talking about 30-day months to help us do some calculations or something. You know, some people do those calculations to figure out the dates. It, it's close enough as far as I'm concerned since we don't know exactly what events are prescribed. But what is clear is that there's power to the witnesses. Now, once again, power is issued from the throne room. You know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse were given authority to go do all these plagues. The angels blow the trumpet, and only then do the plagues happen. We're going to see in a little bit that the beast is going to be led out of the bottomless pit and given authority over the earth, even to kill Christians. Well, here, these witnesses are given power. Everything's authorized. We keep getting hit with this over and over and over and over and over again because God doesn't want us to forget. I'm in control. It's hard to remember that when everything's spinning out of control. They are authorized and given power. What are they given power to do? Verse 5, If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. Now, I want to see this. 
This is very Marvel Comics seeming, don't you think? It's kind of like the Fantastic Four guy. He says, flame on and starts blasting people with fire. So this could be something that is metaphorical, like they speak and people fall. Whatever it is, it's uh, clearly supernatural. And you would think, when people see this, that they would want to repent. But remember, no matter what happens, the people just shake their fist at God. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Verse 6, these have the power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So it could be that the seven seals and the six trumpets are all intermingled with the commands from these two witnesses. Because again, these are not necessarily sequential, they're just authorizations. Verse 7, when they finish their testimony, their martyreo, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war with them. So we have this beast that is the Antichrist, and we'll talk more about him. He's going to become a key figure as we go forward here. And it's very interesting because the beast very clearly is a man, and the beast very clearly is a demon. So exactly how all that works, we will talk about The overriding point here is there's now this battle that's been going on between Jesus and Satan kind of with us as the intermediaries and Satan as our accuser now breaks out. It's mano a mano now. It just just breaks out in full scale warfare. In fact, we're going to see in a little bit the angels and the demons are in open warfare in the heavens. Who knows what all this is going to look like. Part of why all these superhero movies with the graphic animation may be coming out is to prepare people not to be surprised when they see all this stuff. You know, it might be Iron Man, Fantastic Four, all happening. It's like, oh yeah, I've seen that before. (laughs) So they have these plagues that they're doing. In verse 7, they finish their testimony. Now, this is important because do these witnesses know that they're going to be here for three and a half years? I I think the answer would be yes. And who are these two witnesses? Well, we don't know who they are. The best speculation I know of is that it's Elijah and Enoch. I like that speculation because... Hebrews says it's appointed to man once to die. And Enoch and Elijah did not die. And I kind of like that because it's kind of poetic, don't you think? Because Enoch represents the period before the flood when the earth was destroyed because it filled with violence. And Elijah represents the period after the flood and the earth is about to be destroyed because it filled with violence. Once again, first time with water, second time with fire. And here's these guys, what are they using to blast their enemies? Fire. So, we don't know who these are. Some people speculate it's Moses and Elijah because those are the two guys that came down and talked to Jesus, you know, when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And, you know, there's this thing in Jude about they fought over the body of Moses. So, maybe that indicates that somehow Moses' body was, like, put in a carbon freeze, you know, so he could come back and Han Solo, this thing. (laughs) But they finished their testimony. They didn't fear death. See how this is once again an example of the overriding theme. We are to be witnesses. Just to do the job God gave us to do. And don't fear death. You know that we are invulnerable until our time has come. Nobody can hurt us until God has authorized something to hurt us. And then our time's done. And we can declare victory if we're good witnesses. Brandon? The term for finish there is that same word, telos, which is what you were talking about earlier. Okay. Awesome. So when they finish their testimony, our job is to teleo, 
to finish, to persevere all the way to the end. And don't give up when you see all these terrible things happen because life's full of terrible stuff, right? And this is not just in the period of Revelation. This is for His servants. It's not just for His servants who are going to live through this time period. Remember, He started with what was and is of the churches who were and have already been. And they have the same message that we have that the people that are going to go through the tribulation have. Great point. Taleo, your martyreo. Okay, so then this beast ascends out of the abyss and will make more against them. Overcome them. Know what word that is? Nikeo. It's Nike again. So now the beast is Nike because it just means to have victory. And it's going to be real clear here that death and Satan have victories, but they don't have the final victory. See, when we die or when we experience death with a loved one, or we experience loss on this earth, that's because Satan's winning at that point in time. But that is not the final answer. It's not the end of the story. The story keeps unfurling. And when it comes to completion, when the teleo happens, it's all going to be made right. And this massive promise and this massive hope is what this book is about. Well, let's see. Finish their testimony, okay, and they'll overcome them and kill them. So the witnesses are going to die. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So here's Jerusalem being called Sodom and Egypt. Isn't that interesting? I'm not sure why those terms are used, but perhaps it's because Sodom was a very morally bankrupt and Egypt was a political tyranny. When you have moral bankruptcy and political tyranny, you have about the worst you can have. And at this point in time, Jerusalem has sunk into that position. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies, these two witnesses who have now been killed by the beast, who's the Antichrist, who came from the bottomless pit. They will see their bodies three and a half days. Isn't that interesting how this three and a half keeps showing up? Forty-two months, 1,260 days, now three and a half days. Now again... This time period where these witnesses are testifying is probably the last three and a half years, which Jesus called the Great Tribulation. It's probably this last three and a half years. If that's the case, then at the end of that three and a half years, these guys are killed and their bodies are shown openly dead, like on TV, yay, this guy's dead, kind of like we did with Osama bin Laden. You know, yay, they're dead. These guys who persecuted us, these guys who brought plagues and stuff, three and a half days. And then those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to one another. So they start a new holiday because the two witnesses are dead. Kind of reminds me of uh, Wizard of Oz. Ding dong, the witnesses are dead. <laughs> they send gifts to another because the two... Pro- yeah, that's a pretty morbid song, don't you think? We, we, we show that to little kids. Have you ever thought of that? <laughs> yay, death, yay, death. Well, this is, gonna, this is what is going to happen. They make merry, send gifts, because the two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now again... This is not necessarily the end of the three and a half years because one of the reasons why he might have said 42 months uh, that, the, that the Gentile court will be trod underfoot, which I'm pretty sure is the last three and a half years, and that the witnesses prophesy 1,260 days is because they may be different time periods. It may be that these witnesses somehow start before the uh, abomination of desolation. I don't know. The times don't matter that much. It's the overall message I think we're supposed to get. 
And then after the three and a half days of this celebration, something really cool happens. The breath of life from God enters the two witnesses. They stand on their feet. Great fear falls on those who see them for good reason. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. So there they are in the street, and then suddenly they get up and then shoot up to heaven. Beam me up. They're gone. It's a rapture. There's at least one rapture during the seven-year period, and it's the two witnesses. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. That'd be Jerusalem. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, they did not repent, but they gave glory. It's just always important to remember, all glory is is something being recognized for what it is. That's all it is. It's something being recognized for all it is. It's not some sort of a, of a, a gift that something gives to something else. It's just when you say, that's the way it is. And anything can give God glory. And in this case, you've got unrepentant people shaking their fist at God saying, we know that's you. And that's giving glory to God because they recognize that they know it's God even though they're shaking their fist at Him and refusing to repent. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming. The three woes are the last three trumpets. So now we've finished the sixth trumpet now. And the seventh trumpet is about to blow. The last woe. And again, as we progress through these seals and then the trumpets and then the bowls, the plagues and the judgments get progressively worse. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven. So now remember, in the days of the seventh angel, everything's going to come to full completion in the days of the seventh angel. So now the seventh angel blows. This is what we've all been waiting for. This is what we've all been praying for, for this angel to blow. And he blows, and he says, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. you just got to break out singing that if you're capable. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, O Lord Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come. This book. The things that were and are, and the things that are to come. That's also God. He is the one. Because you have taken your great power and reigned. This word reigned here is in past tense, which is confusing. Because the reign is beginning, and it's given to us in past tense as though he had already started it. Well, it's because in the Greek, this is an errorist tense, and we don't have that tense in English. I'm going to give you my best understanding of it, and then let Brandon... My chauffeur here uh, uh, corrected. Uh, an heiress tense is assigned to something that has a particular time period. So we past is something before now, future is something uh, after now in English. Well, in the heiress tense, it can be any time period that not necessarily associated with now. And so what's happening here, he's saying, your reign is beginning. That's what's taking place here. How'd I do? Not too bad. Not too bad? <laughs> How could you improve it? Eris is not specific to any time period. It literally means an undefined time period. An undefined time period. But it has to have a beginning, right? Yeah, it's an event that has occurred or will occur. An event that has or will occur. Okay. It's not specific. All right. So the nations were angry and your wrath has come. 
and the time of the dead that they should be judged, that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. You fill the earth with violence? I'm going to bring violence on you. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven. The Ark of the Covenant was seen in His temple. There were lightnings, noises, thunders, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. So again, we're going now John is looking at earth. He's, looking, he's still completely cognizant of what's going on in heaven. And things happening on earth are happening because they're authorized in heaven. Now next time, what we're going to see is a drama, a play, a movie. And there's going to be a replay of human history that we're going to be given to kind of remind us where all this came from and where it's going and why this is all happening. Why is all this happening? Well, we're going to see it in like a summary of all human history next time. God, thank you for your grace and that you are the creator of the world and the one who um, holds all authority in your hand. Thank you that we can trust you that you have our best interest at heart. And when you tell us these things to be great witnesses and not fear death, it's because you have an amazing opportunity for us that we can possess if we're willing. In Jesus' name, amen.